Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather here tonight and that we can learn more about your word and the glorious hope that awaits us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us think well on these things, that you would help us to understand the scriptures in a deeper level, the Lord, that you would expound truth to us. And that I ask, Lord, that you would help excite us for our great promise and hope that we may live lives that are free from the sin that so easily entangles us and that we may have our heads lifted high looking for your soon return. We ask that you would accomplish this through us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this evening we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. And I, of course, started 2 Thessalonians 2 last time we were together. And we're going to be finishing the exegesis of that part of the, the first eight verses. And we're going to be looking at the apostasy and the restrainer. Now, this evening I'm going to be focusing on the apostasy. The next time we're together, we're going to be focusing in on the restrainer. Okay, but I will be mentioning the restrainer somewhat this evening as well. Now, let me just refresh you where we were the last time we were together. I had put up a quote from Alan Kirshner from his website entitled, It's the Antichrist Stupid. And he said, if you recall, he said, once again recently, I had an ex-pre-tribber write me and share his encouraging epiphany of how the truth was under his nose all this time in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul makes it explicitly clear that the church will see the revelation of Antichrist. This text is the most commonly cited when I read pre-wrath testimonies. And then, friends, he went on to say this on his website. He says, how someone reads the following passage, and that, of course, is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5, and concludes that the rapture occurs before the revelation of Antichrist is a lesson in how tradition prevents many believers from seeing the truth. Now, I have to be honest with you, initially I was quite smitten with Second Thessalonians 2, and I thought, well, maybe it, it does prove the point that he's claiming. However, after further review and study of the passage, I realized that that's not true. And I'm going to lay out the case. What is Alan Kirshner saying? He believes that in Second Thessalonians 2, 4, the description of the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple is synonymous or happens, or I should say is coincident with the revelation of the Antichrist. That's what his claim is. And so let me show you this on a slide. What is the issue? Well, this is a passage that we looked at last time, Second Thessalonians 2, 3, where Paul wrote, he said, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not present. Remember, that was the day of the Lord unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, I'm going to go to verse 4, and I'm going to show you what Kirshner is claiming is the revelation. In other words, in verse 4, Paul goes on, he says, "...who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God." Now, what Kirshner is saying is that the man of lawlessness is revealed, that revelation occurs here, when he takes his seat in the temple of God. Okay? Now, if he's right, then we have to connect the dots and say, well, according to Daniel 9.27, the abomination of desolation occurs at the midpoint of the 70th week, right here. And therefore, if the man of lawlessness is revealed when he seats himself in the temple, that would occur right here. And therefore, it would prove that the day of the Lord must be sometime in the last three and a half years, and it would rule out Therefore, the possibility of it being in the first three and a half years, and therefore, it would preclude the possibility of the pre-trib rapture. Are you with me? Now, this is all predicated, however, on 2 Thessalonians 2.4, 
and this phrase here that he takes a seat in the temple, it would all be predicated on that being synonymous with his revelation. What I'm going to prove to you, it is not. That this is what's called an appositional phrase in that it further describes who the Antichrist is. It does not tell us when the Antichrist is revealed. And do you remember I gave you that example of an appositional phrase last time I used Bob. I used a sentence where I talked about Bob DeWay, comma, pastor from Twin City Fellowship and guest theologian, comma, is going to be preaching about the substitutionary atonement today. Let's say that was an announcement. In between the commas is app, it's an appositional phrase. It's further description of who he is. Okay, That's exactly what we have going on in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And that is the case I'm going to lay out before you. Now, let me give you a little bit of a reminder where we were last time. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a summary of what we covered just because I know some of these things are complex. So let me get our gears turning again. Do you recall in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, I talked about this phrase, coming in our gathering together to him, and I said that is one event, namely the rapture where you and I are caught up to meet the Lord in the air according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It is one event. And the key thing to understand about the 2 Thessalonians 2 passage was that those in Thessalonica were convinced by false teachers that they were living during the day of the Lord. And that's why Paul is to say here, do not be disturbed whether by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so come down here with me. Anytime you see these, this tick, this and this, it's the 70th week. Okay, it's the seven years of tribulation. Well, according to my pre-tribute, the day of the Lord occurs to this whole 70th week. These people reason or must reason that they were living somewhere in here. Why? Well, because they're undergoing such great persecution. That's why. And such trial and tribulation. Okay. And remember, we focused in on this term, has come. And that's a very good translation by the New American Standard. It comes from the verb enestaken. And it is, in fact, the perfect tense. And it indicates that, in fact, the day of the Lord is present. Why? Because it's already come. The idea of the perfect tense, again, is something that happens antecedent. It's in the past. It's perfectly completed. And its effect is still with us today. Okay, so the, what that says is that they were concerned that they were in the day of the Lord. Why? It had already come. So what was very important for that interpretation or our interpretation later is that we would see that it is present. That is the day of the Lord. They thought they were in it. Okay, now why is that important? Well, we're going to take it to the next verse. We had to talk about verse 3 where Paul says again, and by the way, I'm going to be reading these passages probably ad nauseum over and over, but it's just because we have so many details to get into Again, 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. Remember, this is the apodosis. Remember the protasis, apodosis? Protasis is the if, apodosis is the then. In this verse, the apodosis is inverted. It's first, and then the protasis is second. Remember that? And we said that it, right here, is the day of the Lord. Remember that? And we said that the best way to translate, it's not will not, because it's not future. Why? Remember anastaken, the verb that we just looked at in verse 2? It gave us the idea that it was already present. So it's not that the day will come. It's the idea that it's already present. So we said the better way to render the apodosis would be as follows. It is not present. So let's read the whole thing again. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And I'm not the only one that came up with this. There is a scholar named Robert Thomas from... The Gabeline, it's the Expositor's Bible Commentary, and he says the very same thing. 
He says, circumstances here justify a present tense in the apodosis, however, the carryover thought from anastakin. Remember, that was the verb that we saw back in verse 2. Other New Testament combinations of ein proton or unless first, you can see that in Matthew 12.29, Mark 3.27, John 7.51, and Romans 15.24 also reveal the preference elsewhere for a present tense apodosis under similar circumstances. So he's saying the same thing that I've come up with is that the best way to render this text is that it is not present. Okay, meaning they believe that they were in the day of the Lord, but Paul is saying it's not possible. Okay, why? Well, because if it were possible, you would see these two things. You would see the apostasy and the man of lawlessness because these are the two events that happen in the beginning of the day of the Lord, which again, I believe happens in the beginning of the 70th week. And if you recall, I gave evidence that it happens at the beginning of the 70th week. And one of the pieces of evidence that I cited was the first seal out of Revelation 6-2, where John says, he says, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And I talked about this is a reference to this man of lawlessness. Okay, And if you recall that this red uh, verb here that I've highlighted was ex erkamai. And according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it means the rise of sinister figures. So it's very likely that that is a term designed to tell you that this person is being revealed. In fact, Erkamai, which is closely, it's a relative of ex-Erkamai, is often used for the revelation of people. Okay? So the point being is there's a good, in fact, even pre-Wrath scholars agree that most of them, I know Rosenthal does, Robert Van Campen does, Ryan Habanaugh does, he believes that the first seal occurs at the beginning of the 70th week. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you some further evidence of this. The second seal, notice in Revelation 6, 3 through 4, it says, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and the great sword was given to him. Notice this term, it was granted. There we have a divine passive, the idea that God is the one who's going to be granting the peace to be taken. Okay, so who's responsible for these things? Well, God is. Who else would be? Of course, it's God, right? And what is he taking? Well, he's taking peace from the earth, all right? And this happens in the second seal right after the first one. Now, the reason why that's important, again, is because 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says that the day of the Lord comes while people are saying peace and safety, okay? Remember, the pre-wrath position is that the day of the Lord happens somewhere in the last three and a half years. Well, how is that possible if the second seal, in fact, occurs here and peace has been taken from the earth due to warfare, in fact, in the fourth seal, we lose a quarter of the world's population, why would they be saying peace and safety? Okay, so again, what I'm building the case is that the apostasy and the man of lawlessness are both occurring in the beginning of the 70th week and therefore at the beginning of the tribulation period and the day of the Lord. Okay? Now, the description of the Antichrist, what I want to go into now is to show that, again, 2 Thessalonians 2.4 is about the description of who Antichrist is. It does not have to do with the timing of when he is revealed. Okay, And that's the case I'm going to lay out before you now. So again, in 2 Thessalonians 2.3-4, let me read it again. Paul writes, he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the day of the Lord, cannot be present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Now, that's verse 3. Verse 4 I have underlined. 
and my contention is, and by the way, I'm going to show you scholars that agreed with me that I didn't have their commentary at the time, okay? But I'm just showing you that because my view has been corroborated by them, and I, I feel better about it. What you see is what's called an adjectival participle that links back to the man of lawlessness. This whole part that is underlined is what's called an appositional phrase. It is further description of who the man of lawlessness is. Again, Alan Kirshner in the pre-wrath view claims that this is in fact synonymous with his being revealed. So this man of lawlessness is revealed when he does these things. Okay, that is the timing of his revelation. I'm going to be proving to you that the timing of the revelation of Antichrist happens in verse 8, not in verse 4. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out in this passage is notice the middle voice which is usually translated for himself, you see that twice. For instance, you see it in this phrase, who opposes and exalts himself. You see it down here, displaying himself as being God. So you see it in these two places, and it's really implied by, I think this is an infinitive here, that he takes a seat in the temple of God. So the point is, is everything within verse 4, Antichrist is doing it for himself. Okay? He's doing it himself. He is opposing and exalting himself. He is displaying himself as being God. Interestingly enough, see where I have highlighted is revealed in verse 3? Anytime you see the revelation of Antichrist, the passive voice is used. Now, what's the difference? Well, remember, active voice, I hit the ball. Passive voice, I'm hit by the ball. Middle voice is I throw the ball for myself. Okay? Middle voice, you're doing something for yourself. So the point being is anytime it's talking about the revelation of Antichrist, the implication is God is doing it. But in verse 4, again, that Kirshner is claiming has to do with the timing of the revelation of Antichrist, the only voice that we have is the middle voice. Okay, giving further support that verse 4 can't have anything to do with the timing of the revelation of Antichrist. Are you with me? So the timing of the revelation of Antichrist is found in verse 3, 6, and 8. All right? Now let me move on here and just show you that, again, verse 4 is seen by men like Gordon Fee and the New International Commentary in the New Testament. He says this about verse 4, the clause that constitutes our verse 4 sits in opposition to the twofold description of the rebel that has preceded the lawless one doomed to destruction. Thus, what Paul does next is to describe the rebel's activities in a way that offers the divine reason for his doom. Again, uh, here Gordon Fee, and I didn't, by the way, I didn't have this commentary at the time I did my paper and I did all this research, but Gordon Fee, I respect, he's written many texts on hermeneutics. He does a great job, uh, Bob has pointed this out, Gordon Fee does a great job in the First Corinthians, he's probably the foremost expert on that. And here he's saying that verse 4 is an appositional phrase. Again, apposition is one of description, not timing. Okay? Now, let me give you another scholar, Leon Morris, and he's going to say here regarding verse 8, of Second Thessalonians 2, that it is there that the timing of the revelation of Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is found, not here in verse 4. But I'm putting it here because I want you to see the connection between the timing again does not happen in verse 4, it's in verse 8. Leon Morris says this, It is only then, after the restrainer has been removed, that the lawless one will be revealed. Well, when does that happen? Well, in verse 8. So if you want to know when... The timing is for the revelation of the man of lawlessness. You have to look to verse 8. It is not found in verse 4. Okay, it's not there. Let me show you some timing indicators in verses 5 through 8. Paul continues, he says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? What things? Well, who the Antichrist was, who the man of lawlessness was, what the apostasy was like. And he continues, he says, And you know what restrains him now 
so that in his time he will be revealed. There's another passive, okay, and more than likely a divine passive, that God is the one who will reveal him. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now notice this underlying portion. This is talking about the restrainer. Only he who now restrains will do so, and here we have our first timing indicator, until, one of my favorite Greek words, until he is taken out of the way. What I want you to notice is, notice the restrainer. I'm going to be pointing this out in another slide. Who is the restrainer restraining here? It's actually lawlessness. Okay, the restrainer is actually restraining lawlessness, and that's important because it's going to show us later that the apostasy and the man of lawlessness, those two events, the man of lawlessness being revealed, those two events happen really simultaneously. Okay, but notice that the restrainer, he will restrain until he is taken out of the way. Now that's verse 7. Now we come to verse 8 with the red. Notice it says, then that lawless one will be revealed. And the then is another timing indicator. It comes from Kai Tati. And this is from Lonida. That is a Greek lexicon. And it says that Tati means a point of time subsequent to another point of time. It just means then. But those are our timing indicators. In other words, if you're looking for clues as to when is the Antichrist revealed, wouldn't you look for the timing indicators? Okay, doesn't it seem to have a little bit of chutzpah to say, well, it must be back in verse 4. And then when your people that you're debating with say, well, no, it's not in verse 4, it's in verse 8, you say, well, it's just because your tradition has held you blind. Okay, well, I didn't have much of a tradition in the pre-trib position, but I'm just saying I think it it cuts the other way. I think, in fact, the pre-wrath tradition has blinded Kirshner to the truth of the passage, in my opinion. Okay, I think it's very obvious that the timing of when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is revealed happens in verse 8, not verse 4. And again, notice it says, then that lawless one will be revealed. We have another passive. So any time Antichrist is revealed, it's God is implied who's doing the revelation. We're back in verse 4. Antichrist is the one who exalts himself. So he's revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So again, friends, verse 8 shows us that the Antichrist will be revealed when the restrainer is taken out of the way. And that's why next week we're going to have to, or yeah, next week, we're going to be spending copious amounts of time as discussing who the restrainer is. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure. But now, if I'm saying, and I've done all this research that I'm not sure, doesn't that go back to what Bob had said how many months ago about certainty? We really can't be certain about all these things because no one knows for sure who the restrainer is. But I'm going to show you the pre-wrath case is that it is, in fact, Michael the archangel and that he stands aside at the midpoint of the tribulation is very unlikely. Okay, not that it's Michael, but that he can't stand aside at the midpoint. So anyway, we'll be discussing that, but you can see how important now the restrainer is because the restrainer is tied to the timing of when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Okay, and therefore the timing of the day of the Lord. So finally, I want to talk now about the Antichrist destruction in verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul said this. He says, Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay, with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. I want to point out that the slay, anale, and bring to an end, kapageo, are they're actually synonymous terms. They're parallel. They mean the same thing. One means to slay and the other one means to abolish. Okay? But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you the pre-wrath view according to Robert Van Campen. And Robert Van Campen, in his book, The Sign, on page 315, 26, and 496, he says the Antichrist is handcuffed or paralyzed at Christ's parousia and eventually destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. So what the pre-wrath position states is that this man of lawlessness 
he, instead of being brought to an end and abolished, they believe this term, katopigeo, uh, literally means to be handcuffed or paralyzed. Are you with me? And what's more, Van Campen would have you believe that this occurs before that does. Okay? Because this has to do with his destruction. Now, why does he say that? Well, let me explain again the pre-wrath position. What they believe is that the Antichrist will be handcuffed at the rapture. And this happens between the sixth and seventh seal sometime in the last three and a half years. Okay? So remember, their rapture occurs in Revelation chapter 7. Remember, that's their rapture. It's synonymous with Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. They see it all being the rapture. Well, the problem lies in if he's destroyed here, he certainly can't be doing anything at the Battle of Armageddon, can he? So what they reason is, they reason, well, he must be only handcuffed here at the parousia, and therefore he'll be destroyed later at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, notice... On my diagram here, from the midpoint until the last part of the tribulation period or the 70th week is 1,260 days. So we have two, uh, in my opinion, we have two contradictions with the pre-wrath position. First of all, Antichrist is destroyed at Armageddon, but notice it happens at the 1,290-day mark. Okay, in other words, 1,290 days from the midpoint out to here as referenced in Daniel 12. What's the problem with that? Well, according to Revelation 13.5, how long does Antichrist reign? 1,260 days. Okay, not 1,290. So Antichrist actually reigns, the, the man of lawlessness, from the midpoint to here. And that's when the pre-trib position says the battle of Armageddon happens. So I would take issue with this 30-day extension at that point. The other problem is, is again, this handcuffing, as I'm going to show you, if in fact, as Prerath says, the man of lawlessness is handcuffed here. How does he gather the nations to bring them to the battle of Armageddon? He's handcuffed. He's paralyzed. He has no authority to do anything. And so, in my opinion, we have two contradictions uh, within this Second um, Thessalonians 2.8 and the related ideas here. So let me move on now, and I'm going to show you um, how they interpret slay and bring to an end. And again, we're going to be talking about these two terms. I had talked to Alan Kirshner on the phone, and his contention was that this slay which is Analeh, he believes that that is reference to Antichrist, his authority being taken away, or it, it can mean that. Well, I, I believe if I recall correctly, Analeh or Anareo, which is the lexical form, is used 24 times in the New Testament, 22 times it has to do with destruction. Only twice does it have to do with a removal of power or authority or removal of, in some sense. However, what's so devastating against the pre-wrath view that this somehow indicates that the Antichrist is merely reduced in power is the fact that every single scholar I've looked at agrees with this, that Paul is citing from Isaiah 11.4. And Isaiah 11.4 is all about the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse is what's... So the Messiah, it's Jesus. It says, and he, that is Jesus, will strike the land with the word of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the ungodly. In the Septuagint, remember that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, slay here is anale. It's the identical form even that's used here in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And if it means destruction here, which every commentator believes, then it certainly must mean destruction here. In fact, I don't know of a commentator that doesn't see Paul referring to Isaiah 11.4. Okay? So to me, this proves that whatever's happening here in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it is the destruction of Antichrist. Okay, it is his destruction. And in fact, 
men, again, like Gordon Fee would say that this slay and bring to an end are synonymous. This is a form of synonymous parallelism. So let me show you the, the verbs again. We have anareo, which is anale, that's used right here. That's the form. This is the lexical form. This is the form in the first person singular. This is what you would find in your lexicon. This is third person singular. That's what you have here because it's, it's the Lord. The Lord is doing the slaying. So, but bring to an end, that comes from katabageo, means to abolish or do away. Okay. Now, let me just show you what Gordon Fee says about this. And again, what I, my contention is, is that this slaying and that this abolishing are happening simultaneously. It is saying the same thing. It's just synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism has to do with if you say something one way and you change the word somewhat, but you have the same meaning, basically, you say it another way, that's synonymous. They do that in the Old Testament all the time. And Gordon Fee says that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, so that the rest of Paul's sentence, that is up here in verse 8, functions in a very in very much the same way that synonymous parallelism does, that this is a poetic moment is demonstrated both by the redundancy of this clause in its own right and by the otherwise unnecessary amplification of coming itself. Do you see coming here? That is the term parousia. And that has the reference to, remember, the bodily descent of the Lord Jesus, whether it be the rapture or at his second coming. Well, we have a redundant term here, epiphania, which is the epiphany or the appearance. So in other words, if you just said appearance, that is fine if you want to talk about the return of the Lord. Or if you want to just say parousia, that's fine. But there's redundancy, just as there's redundancy with slay and bring to an end. And that's why Gordon Fee is convinced that this is synonymous parallelism. And I would agree. So friends, whatever happens in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, we know it's the Antichrist being destroyed. He's not being handcuffed. Okay? So that's why it must happen at one time, and that's why the pre-trib position maintains that it happens at the end of the 70th week at the Battle of Armageddon. Okay? Now, let me show you another problem, and I've already alluded to it. It comes from Revelation 16. Notice what happens here. Revelation 16, it says, uh, John writes, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon... And out of the mouth of the beast, and that's who we're talking about, the man of lawlessness, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. Now, what's the problem in the pre-wrath position? Well, if Antichrist is handcuffed and he's paralyzed and he can do nothing, then how can he be speaking forth in taking part in gathering the nations to the battle of Armageddon, which they believe happens here. And so we have, in my opinion, another contradiction. That's what I was alluding to earlier. Okay? So again, I think this is problematic for their view. And again, what I would affirm in the pre-tribution is that, again, the Antichrist, nothing will happen to him until the end of the 70th week. He reigns according to Revelation 13.5 for 1260 days. That's from the midpoint to here. And it's at that time he will be destroyed when, they, when the Messiah comes. And we see that in, for instance, Zechariah 14. The Messiah sets his foot on the Mall of Olives and it'll split in two, right? We see it in uh, Revelation 19 where the, the sword is actually proceeding from the mouth of Messiah. That's another reference, I believe, back to Isaiah 11.4. So that's all synonymous with the destruction of Antichrist talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. So let me give you a summary, a summary of 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. Number one, the Thessalonians, this is the issue with those at Thessalonica. They believed, 
or I should say the Thessalonians could not have been living during the day of the Lord because the apostasy and man of lawlessness inaugurated its inception. So that's how Paul quenched their fears. He said you can't possibly be living during the day of the Lord. Why? Well, because the apostasy and the man of lawlessness, that happens first. It's the very first thing out of the chute, right? So that can't ha- you can't be living during that. So that's how he quenched their fears. Uh, number two, the man of lawlessness is not revealed by setting himself into the temple. Uh, again, that's Kirshner's claim. This is merely a description that is apposition of who the man of lawlessness is. Again, the timing of the revelation of the man of lawlessness occurs in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, not 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Is everybody with me? Uh, number three, the timing of the revelation of the man of lawlessness is tied to the removal of the restrainer. And that's why we're going to have to talk about who the restrainer is. Number four, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 teaches that Antichrist is destroyed at the parousia, not handcuffed as Prerath maintains. Number five, if the Antichrist is handcuffed at the rapture according to the Prerath scheme, he could not gather the nations to Armageddon, at least take part in gathering the nations to Armageddon in Revelation 16, 14 through 16. So that is the summary. Now, what I want to move on to now is talking about the apostasy. And you'll see that I have entitled this, When is the Rebellion? Because I am going to refer to the apostasy as the rebellion. I will use those terms interchangeably because that is how the scholarship understands the term to be used in this passage. So again, we see the rebellion or the apostasy referred to here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And again, I want to show you how the pre-wrath understands it because I want to engage with that. The pre-wrath view says that the future apostasy will be a Jewish one that will start at the beginning of the 70th week and will last through the first five seals. So says Rosenthal in his book and also Robert Van Campen. Now, there's agreement and disagreement that I have. I agree, and the pre-trib position would agree, that the apostasy happens at the beginning of the 70th week, but where we part ways is I don't believe that it's purely just a Jewish rebellion against the law of Moses, Okay, which the pre-wrath typically maintains that it will be primarily a rebellion against the law of Moses alone. And so it's going to be more localized. I believe the reference to the apostasy is going to be purely, I shouldn't say purely, but it'll be a worldwide event. Okay, And it will, in fact, happen at the beginning of the 70th week. Now, here's the difficulty. I think it presents the pre-wrath position. Pre-wrath teaches that the Antichrist will be revealed at the midpoint of the tribulation, yet the apostasy will start at the 70th week's inception. So in other words, remember, at the midpoint... Kirshner in the pre-wrath position, they believe that Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will be revealed here. Okay, But remember, they believe that the day of the Lord and therefore the apostasy, I should say that the apostasy starts right here at the beginning of the day of the Lord or at the 70th week. And what I'm going to show you is that that is somewhat of a contradiction because I'm going to prove that the man of lawlessness and the apostasy happen simultaneously. Okay, And it will, in fact, be at the beginning of the 70th week. That's the better rendering of that passage. Passages. Okay, so let me show you where I come up with this. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, again, I'm going to read it again. Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the day of the Lord, is not present unless the apostasy, that is the rebellion, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Take note of this term first, proton. This is how it's understood by the scholarship today. They believe that the apostasy and the man of lawlessness are together and they must happen first or the day of the Lord is not present. So if you think of this as the 70th week 
or the um, seven years of tribulation or the day of the Lord, think of this, the very beginning, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness come onto the scene. And then as you progress through the seven years, tribulation gets worse and worse until the Messiah comes back, Jesus comes back at the end of the 70th week and it's all done. Okay, so the very first thing in this point is the apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, I'm not just saying that to be a contrarian with the pre-wrath view. Good men like F.F. Bruce maintain that from the Greek. For instance, F.F. Bruce says from the word biblical commentary, he says the coming of the apostasia and the revealing of the man of lawlessness are coincident. So that means they happen at the same time. So the best rendering of this, again, is what two things must happen before the day of the Lord can be present? Well, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness being revealed. Okay? And so says also Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee in the New National Commentary of the New Testament again says this. He says, Paul's explanation as to why they should not be deceived begins with a reminder about what must take place first, namely the rebellion, which includes the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So again, what we're seeing then is that the rebellion and the man of lawlessness, they occur at the beginning of the 70th week. Because remember, pre-wrath even agrees that the apostasy, the rebellion, happens here. But what these scholars are saying is the best way to understand the Greek of this passage is that they both are occurring at the beginning. And so therefore, the pre-wrath view that the man of lawlessness is revealed here is more than likely not true. Okay, I wouldn't be definite about it, but that's the way the, the scholarship is looking at it currently. Okay, now let me move on and I'm going to show you something from verse 7 that gives us more credence to that and kind of bolsters the support of the pre-trib position. In 2 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul writes, he says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he has taken out of the way. Again, this term lawlessness, I'm going to show you the definition here. It is actually anomia, which means to behave with complete disregard for the laws or regulations of a society. Friends, that is exactly what the apostasy is all about. It is going to be a worldwide attempt to usurp the authority and the power of God, so much so that they have a one world order where they're going to have one government under a false trinity, uh, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And they will reign in their city that is Babylon, the city of man, until God destroys it and throws it down. That's what's being referred to. Now, this lawlessness is already present, but the restrainer is restraining it. And so notice that the restrainer is first and foremost restraining this lawlessness. Why is that important? Well, because the restrainer is restraining the lawlessness that has to do with the apostasy, but he's also restraining what? The man of lawlessness. And so when the restrainer is taken out of the way, that must mean that we have both the lawlessness, that is the apostasy, and the the man of lawlessness revealed. And therefore, it seems to, again, give contradiction or contradicts the pre-wrath view. The apostasy, they believe, happens at the beginning of the 70th week where they believe that the restrainer is removed at the middle to reveal the man of lawlessness. Again, this seems to point to the fact that both are occurring right here. And therefore, the restrainer must be removed here. And therefore, it's more evidence that the day of the Lord starts in the beginning of the 70th week, which is more evidence that the rapture must happen just before. Are you with me? (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm throwing a lot of data at you, okay? All right, and I'm going to be talking more about the evidence for that when we talk about the day of the Lord. Okay, now, we've talked about when the rebellion occurs. Well, what is the rebellion? And again, I'm going to give you a couple of um, 
suggestions here. These are the two main views on what this rebellion is or this apostasy. The first one is is that it's a religious defection. We see this, for instance, in Acts 21.21. In fact, apostasia, where we get the term apostasy, it only occurs twice in the New Testament. Here in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 and Acts 21.21, in the context of Acts 21.21, Paul is being accused of inciting the Jews to rebel and refute the law of Moses, which is really a, a false accusation because, remember, Paul isn't saying to people that if you are circumcised that you're lost or if you're uncircumcised you're lost. Remember, to him, circumcision means nothing. It's if you claim that circumcision saves you or Sabbath-keeping saves you, that's the problem. Okay? So, for instance, let me just give you a passage out of 1 Corinthians 7.18. 1 Corinthians 7.18, Paul says this. He says, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. So the claim that Paul was asking people to become somehow uncircumcised, it was just false. Okay? So again... If somebody claimed that they must be circumcised to be saved or that a Gentile had to do it to enter into the covenant graces of Yahweh, Paul would come down on your head. But if you were circumcised, so be it. If you wanted to keep Sabbath, so be it. But don't you dare claim it saves you. That's Paul. And so it was a spurious accusation against him. But nonetheless, that's how apostasy is used. And so, yes, it is used for religious defection. However, the second way that it's used is in the area of political rebellion against God universal. And what I mean by universal is globally. Okay, and my contention is it is this latter usage that's in mind here in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. And I'll be laying that case out for you now. Let me show you a quote from F.F. Bruce. And in fact, if I were to summarize or give you a quote that summarizes what the apostasy is about, it's F.F. Bruce's work right here. This is a great definition of what it's about. And this is what he says. Regarding the rebellion, he says, it appears more probable from the context that a general abandonment of the basis of civil order is envisaged. This is not only a rebellion against the law of Moses, so it includes that, but he says it is a large-scale revolt against public order, and since public order is maintained by the governing authorities who have been instituted by God, it is in fact the whole concept of divine authority over the world that is set at defiance in the rebellion par excellence. In other words, the, this is the whole world is going to gather together in a political revolt to usurp God's authority and to say, we will develop our own utopia, our own kingdom, and our own city. It will be by our works, we don't need you. And in fact, they will give their allegiance to the false trinity. That is what the apostasy is all about, according to F.F. F. Bruce. And I'll show you some reasons why contextually, let me point out a couple of things. Second Thessalonians 2.3. Notice again, who we're talking about the rebellion, the apostasy. Well, it's interesting, when you come to Second Thessalonians 2.10, who is going to partake in this rebellion? Well, notice what 2.10 says. It says, And with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, those who will be partaking in the rebellion are those who perish. The reason why I mention this is this rebellion that takes place, or this apostasia, isn't related to believers. True believers will, in fact, persevere. Okay, Friends, if the apostasy, that is this great rebellion that happens against God, was related just to the Jews as pre-wrath maintains, how can the Jews be in any more rebellion or apostasy? 
They've already rejected Jesus Christ. And so whether they try to keep Sabbath or whether they try to circumcise or get the ceremonial law underway again or their, um, their sacrificial system, they are in rebellion against salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, right? So the point being is those who are going to be partaking in this rebellion are those who will perish, okay? And that's why, in fact, Gordon Fee says again, he says, but despite the usual meaning of this noun in Acts 21, again, that's where apostasia had to do with the rebellion against the Mosaic law that they were accusing Paul of, he says it can hardly have that sense here. He says, after all, nothing in the context indicates that believers will be deceived by the lawless one. Okay, moving on. This is Leon Morris. He says the term rendered rebellion is sometimes used of political or military rebellions. It is not so much the forsaking of one's first love and drifting into apathy that is meant. Of course, that would be a religious defection, okay, as setting oneself actively in the opposition to God. And again, this is going to happen on a global scale, okay? And finally, let me give you one more here. Robert Thomas says in his Expositor's Bible Commentary, He says the worldwide anti-God movement, that is the apostasy, will be so universal as to earn for itself a special designation, the apostasy. And in fact, I forgot to point that out. It has the definite article. So it's not a apostasy or an apostasy, I should say. It is the apostasy, okay, with the definite article. And again, all the scholars that I'm reading are saying this is a worldwide thing. Now, what I want to do is I want to lay out more evidence that in fact... This is a worldwide apostasy. And I want to lay out a little something about God's rule, how God has ruled in the past and how he has ruled now in the present. And I want to talk about the tale of two cities, the cities, of course, being Babylon and Jerusalem. And so what I'm going to do is build you a case that shows you what the apostasy is all about. Okay, and I want to start back in Genesis chapter 4. And what I want you to see in this passage is that here Yahweh is actually the one who is engaged in governing people. He will be the one who will avenge the blood of Cain if it is shed. So remember, Cain murders his brother Abel. He is cast out from the presence of the Lord in the garden to the east. And Cain complains because he says, well, now he's going to be murdered and what's going to happen to him? And so that's where we pick it up here in Genesis 4.15. It says, so the Lord said to him, that is to Cain, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. The, the idea that you get in Genesis 4.15 is that if someone messes with Cain, God will be immediately the one who affects vengeance upon them. And in fact, later on, we see Lamech. He actually says um, if anyone wrongs him, that he won't avenge sevenfold, but seven times seven. Well, what is he doing? He's usurping God's authority. And that is showing you how the trajectory of sin is getting worse and worse and worse in the world. Hence, that's why the flood comes. Lamech also had what? He he said to his wives, well, how many are they supposed to have? Only one. A man is designed to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, singular. Well, he has two wives. He's deviating from that. And he also will take vengeance that exceeds what God will pour vengeance out. That is sevenfold, okay? But what I want you to see here is that God is the one who is in some sense involved with the governing of his creation. But now what we see is in Genesis 6-3, you're going to see Yahweh want to withdraw his governing influence in the world. And in the context here, you had the men 
of God go into the daughters of men. Okay, and more than likely they're fallen angelic beings who end up having relations with the daughters of men. And God becomes very angry. And in verse 3, he says this. It says, Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Notice this term, strive. I think a good case can be made that this dien, which is here that is strive, that's the Hebrew word, it can mean to govern or to judge. Now, here's the debate. Some scholars are saying that dien is actually not here because the form, it's what's called a hapax legomena. It's the only time you see it, that form of that word in the entire Old Testament. And so they're wrestling. Is that really dien? Is that really the, they're wrestling if that's really the form, okay? Now, further evidence that it is in fact dien is found from a version of the Septuagint which has, for that word strive, it has the term uh, krino, which means to judge. And so that's further evidence that, in fact, this striving that we have in our New American Standard would be best translated govern or to judge. Okay? Are you with me? So what's at stake here is that God is wanting to, because of the sinfulness of man, to take his governing authority away from them. And what you'll see is that he's going to allow man to govern man. That's what I'm getting at. He's going to be taking his governing, his immediate, his immediate governing rule on man away. And men are going to rule fellow men. Are you with me? That's what's going to go on here. And in fact, that's exactly what Victor Hamilton says, an Old Testament scholar. He says, The withdrawn spirit of 6.3 calls to mind the hovering spirit in Genesis 1.2, where it hovers, there is order, and chaos is restrained. Where it is withdrawn, chaos flourishes unchecked. And of course, that is part of the reason why we end up getting the flood and men are now going to rule men after the flood. In fact, we see the first institution of human government in Genesis 9-6. So now, no longer is Yahweh responsible for those who murder, but instead man is. Okay, and that's why God says to Noah, Genesis 9-6, he says, whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And in fact, we see the same principle in Romans 13-1 through 4, don't we? that the government does not bear the sword in vain. If anybody takes somebody's life, their life is required by the state. And that's why this notion of pacifism is really an affront to God. Why? Because he has ordained, in fact, I mean, he's commanded that if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. And it's reiterated again in the New, in New Testament, the New Covenant. So here we see man's rule And what happens is God has commanded now man to cover the earth, they are to multiply, they are to disperse and fill the world. But what happens is they all gather together at the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, what they will do is they will try to usurp God's authority in rebellion. And it is this rebellion that will be recapitulated in the last days. That's exactly what is going to happen in the book of Revelation. And in fact, the term for the Tower of Babel, it's Bavel, Bavel in Hebrew. That term Bavel is used anytime you see Babylon in the Old Testament, it's Bavel. It's the same word used for the Tower of Babel. Okay, it's the same one. So whether you read in your English Babylon or Tower of Babel here, it's all the same word. It comes from Bavel. Okay, so what happens here, again, the people gather together And they want to build this utopia and usurp God's authority. Now, let me read it, and I'm going to point out some interesting things here. Notice what these people say. Now, remember, they're supposed to disperse, but rather they come together in Mesopotamia. And they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Now, notice it's a city. It's not just a tower. 
It's a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now, let me stop there. That very phrase you're going to see in the next slide in Jeremiah 51. God is going to apply that phrase to the nation of Babylon because they become the prototypical nation that um, are bent against or are enemies of God's people and therefore God and his purposes. Okay, And you're going to see that play on words in Jeremiah 51. And so he continues, he says, and let us make for ourselves a name. So that's what these, the people are saying. So instead of making a name for God, they're making a name for themselves. Okay, And that's exactly what's going to happen in this great apostasy. It's the same thing. And that's exactly why Leon Morris, you know, Gordon Fee, and all these scholars are saying, no, this is a worldwide apostasy that we're seeing in 2 Thessalonians 2. So anyway, it continues. He says, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. That is their fear. Now what's interesting is in Genesis 3.22, God expresses this angst where he says, man has eaten of the forbidden fruit and he's become like one of us. There's debate. Is the us the Trinitarian reference or is it reference to the host of heaven, the divine council? I don't know. But the point is this. There's this angst where God says he is going to ban man from access to the tree of life. And it is a merciful thing because if man has access to the tree of life, he will have eternal life but in separation from God. And so in an act of mercy, God keeps him from having access to the tree of life. But the same thing applies here. There's more angst because God ends up saying in this context, if man is allowed to do this, there'll be nothing keeping him from doing whatever he wishes. That's the idea that you get. And so what he does then is he confuses the language. So what happens? He disperses the nations again. And when he disperses the nations, now you don't have one government, you have many governments. And Bob and Keith have pointed this out numerous times. If you have many governments, Adolf Hitler gets out of control, all the governments will join up and they'll beat him up and they'll put him back in their place. But what happens at the end of time in the book of Revelation is you have only one government again. And so, and, and who are the head, who's the head of that government? The satanic trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And so when you're in real trouble, and the, in fact, the people give their allegiance to them and they want to usurp God's authority. That's what the apostasy, friends, in 2 Thessalonians 2 is all about. So now, let me move to Jeremiah 51. And again, this phrase is lifted right out of Genesis 11.4, though Babylon should ascend to the heavens. Again, that is Babel. It's the same word that's used of Babel in Genesis 11. Okay, And remember, it was both the city and the tower that they were going to try to have ascend to the heavens. And though she should fortify her, I think it's lofty, stronghold from me, destroyers will come to her, declares Yahweh. So he is pronouncing judgment upon her. And again, Babylon in 586, they destroy Jerusalem, don't they? In 605, remember, they send the deportees to Babylon. So Babylon becomes the prototypical enemy of God's people. And so he judges them in 539 BC by the Medo-Persian ruler Cyrus, doesn't he? Okay, and so they end up destroying the Babylonian Empire. But again, Babylon is going to be recapitulated or remade in the book of Revelation. Now, in Psalm 2, 1 through 4, I want to show you that this idea of taking a stand against Yahweh and his anointed and therefore trying to usurp his authority is deeply rooted in man. The Lord says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Of course, that's the Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So as the nations rage and they try to usurp God's authority, and one day they build the city of man, God is merely scoffing at them and laughing them because he is assured to all of us that know the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem, and it's that city that will dwell forever. Okay? And so he has spoken, but again, that's what the apostasy and the worldwide rebellion is about. Again, it's about God's rule, the tale of two cities. Again, Jeremiah 51, 6 through 8, listen to what the Lord says. He says, flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Now again, this can be applied in 539 B.C., but it's again going to be seen in the end of time. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of Yahweh, intoxicating all the earth. They were a golden cup because they were wealthy, and they were an instrument of God's wrath, but they were intoxicating all the earth because of their harlotry, their idolatry. Okay, And the same thing applies again, you're going to see in Revelation chapter 14 with this worldwide apostasy. And notice it's the plural. The nations have drunk her wine. This very phrase is going to be seen in Revelation 14. You'll see the same thing, the very phrase. Therefore the nations are going mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. What does it say in Revelation 14? Fallen, fallen is Babylon. In fact, you see this very term, the very phrase used in Isaiah 21.9. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered to the, on the ground. So Babylon, again in the Hebrew, it's, you're seeing it here again, Bavel. It's the same term used back in Genesis 11. And it is the symbol of man's trying to usurp God's authority and build their own utopia, their own city, their own kingdom by works, where God has promised a country, or I should say a a city, and a kingdom that's based on his grace. Okay, And so you see the same imagery here now in the worldwide rebellion, Revelation 14.8. John writes, he says, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And remember, who is the head of this? It's the false trinity. It's Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. She who has made all the nations, you saw that in Jeremiah, all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of our immorality. So again, is it just a localized apostasy that just Israel is a part of? No, it's all the nations. All the nations are going to, again, just like they did in Genesis 11, they will try to usurp God's authority, okay? And they will build this Babylon again. Babylon is coming. But yet you and I await not Babylon, but a different city. The city, and this is, and by the way, we have one Jerusalem that's coming where the Messiah will reign for a thousand years. That is the earthly Jerusalem, right? The millennial kingdom. But ultimately, we also have a new Jerusalem to look forward to. Revelation 21.2, John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And notice, it's not made by man. It's not made by a man usurping God's authority, but who is it from? It's from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, in a real sense today, the world has a choice which city it will live for. The city of Babylon, the city of man that is designed by man's works, or is it going to be the city of God that comes from him and it's by his grace? And so again, it's a symbol between works and grace-based salvation. Friends, Babylon is going to crumble. It will fall. And the only city that lives forever is the city of God, 
that is New Jerusalem. And so in some sense, the apostasy is the tale of two cities. That's what it's all about. And that's, again, why, again, it has to do with all the nations. It's not just Israel. And so with that, my contention is is that the apostasy is going to be a worldwide thing. Just as the commentators are saying, and I think that fits the context best of Second Thessalonians 2. So let me give you the rebellion summary. Number one, the rebellion referred to in Second Thessalonians 2.3 does not refer to Israel's apostasy, and I should say alone, but to a worldwide rebellion that God interrupted in Genesis 11. Number two, the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness will occur only after the restrainer is taken out of the way. Number three, it is very likely, therefore, that the rebellion and the man of lawlessness come on the scene at the same time. Okay? Now, that's all I have. I know I threw a lot at you, but now what we're going to do next time is we're going to be delving into who the restrainer is. And I don't know if that'll take us the entire time. It very well could because there's so many things to look into in that issue. We're going to be getting into Daniel chapter 12. But next time, we're going to be focusing on who the restrainer is, I'll be showing you some proposals and I'll be showing you some of the proposals that I think we can eliminate, okay? And again, nobody knows for sure who the restrainer is and therefore that should cause us all to have some form of humility regarding these things regarded to eschatology. So with that, I'll open it up to questions or comments. Uh, Eric, when I read Daniel 11.36, it has a description there of Antichrist in the first part of the verse. It says... The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. Then in the last part of that verse, which deals with timing, it says he will be successful until the time of his wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Doesn't that mean he's going to have pretty much free reign during the, the entire week? Yeah, that, that, that's what I, I believe. And, in fact, we know that he reigns supreme for sure from the midpoint until the 70th week we know that for instance in revelation 13 5 that he has 42 months yeah so i i would you know i don't know how much timing we can gather out of that passage however i would say you're you're right certainly the man of lawlessness is on the scene at the beginning and there's evidence of that because of the first seal he goes out to conquer and what's interesting is that's a there's evidence of a peaceful conquering in the beginning but then right away there are going to be nations that do react against him. They will try to, uh, they, don't, they don't want this, and they will fight against him. And that's where we see the second seal. We see warfare. Well, by the fourth seal, there's such warfare that, in fact, we lose a fourth of the earth's population due to war, pestilence, famine, and wild beasts. So, yeah. I got a question. Yeah. Um, do you think that this rebellion has anything to do with the covenant with the many mentioned in Daniel. Yeah, you know, Bob, why don't you actually answer that because you probably know more about it than I do. <laughs> no, it's very good. Uh, I, I think you're right. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. It, it does. But well, why I think it does. Yeah. Because it would make sense that this covenant has something to do with the removal of the restraint, the removal of the type of civil law that God had set up during the table of the nations. And remember that verse in Deuteronomy 32 about drawing out the boundaries according to the sons of God? Yeah, rather than the sons of Israel, right? Yeah, and so you have a a system that God put in place ever since Babel that's been good for man. We're better off ruled with these fallen men because they're not as bad as the fallen host of heaven. Right, right. Okay, and also 
So that co- I'm just guessing here, but I think that covenant with the many may have something to do with that change in the system. Yeah, that's uh, that's well well said. Yep. Eric, uh, can you explain why um, in the Second uh, Thessalonians two, the first two verses, it's yeah. it's all one sentence. Okay. And it starts out with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Yeah. And then it ends with the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. What's the uh, what's the relationship between those two? And why Between I'm sorry, between what two things? The the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and their our gathering to him mm-hmm. and the day of the Lord. Yeah. Well, let let me just read that. Let me read the first two verses. And I'll explain that. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, he says, Now we request you, brethren. And by the way, the very beginning, it could be um, rendered now concerning or in defense of uh, things related to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. I take that as being one event that would happen in 1 Thessalonians 4.15-17. That is our being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, And remember, that would be a parousia there, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, it says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. In other words, the messages that those in Thessalonica were receiving were in fact false because those false teachers were saying, you're living during the day of the Lord. And if you're living in the day of the Lord, what's, what's the evidence that you're living in the day of the Lord? You're undergoing such persecution, you must be living during the day of the Lord. And the implication is, if you're living during the day of the Lord, what did you miss? You missed the gathering together to be with him. That's the idea. But there's no, there's no indication that the gathering comes before the man of lawlessness is revealed. Would you grant that? No, I, I, I would say I'm just inferring that because, again, what he's doing is he's talking about the parsi, he's talking about our being gathered together. But what's interesting is in both the pre-wrath and the pre-trib positions, for instance, you and I both would affirm that the day of the Lord happens after the rapture. So what's interesting is in both the pre-wrath and the pre-trib view, the the rapture is not immediately what's at stake. What's at stake is whether or not they could possibly be living during the day of the Lord. But by inference, if they're not living during the day of the Lord, or let's just say they are living during the day of the Lord, by inference, that means they've missed the gathering together. And that would have, that would have concerned them as, as well. Yeah, but pre-wrath uh, thinks that the day of the Lord is the same, the first day of the day of the Lord yep. is the same day that the rapture happens. Right. And, and, and the same thing could be applied, I think, to the pre-trib that would happen... Almost simultaneously, it'd be very quick. Yeah. Okay, but there's nothing here that says that the rapture or gathering comes before the man of lawlessness is revealed. Sure. I mean, you have to admit that that that's not right. I, I mean, that's not that, being right. asserted here in Second Thessalonians. Right. Too. I'm just inferring okay. that 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 must okay. be and the reason why I'm inferring that is because again, he says regarding, and it's actually the term is who pair, and who pair. There's some scholars that talk about that. A lot of times it means on behalf of, which has to do with actually atonement. It's a very important preposition. But in relationship to here, who pair often has to do with in defense of. But, and so, but you're still not asserting that. Right, but, but that that's here, what's here's being the point, said. though. My, my whole point in bringing that up is what's interesting is Paul is more than likely, because he uses who pair, he's defending the idea is he's defending this notion 
somehow with the coming of our Lord Jesus, that is the parousia, and are being gathered together to him. In other words, that somehow is related to the day of the Lord. And because we know that the day of the Lord is a broad period, and we're going to be talking about this later, and not just... The day of the Lord is used two different ways. The day of the Lord is used as a 24-hour period for one day, but it's also used as a broad period that extends even, according to uh, 2 Peter 3, into the millennial period. And that's what I believe is being referred to here, the broad day of the Lord, because that's when the trials and the tribulations begin. Okay. So again, the idea is they believe because they've undergone such persecution, they must be in the day of the Lord. Well, if they're in the day of the Lord, what did they miss? The gathering together to be with the Lord. That's their fear. But, but that's consistent with both uh, positions. And pre-trib, yep. That's right. And so the, the discussion then just enters in, when is the timing of the revelation of Antichrist? That's really the debate. Because in verse 4, it's verse 4 that Kirshner believes is synonymous with the revelation when he sets himself up in the temple. Yep. Yeah, I got a quick question. The slide you put up, Second uh, Thessalonians two seven. There's a, a Greek word, and can you just tell me okay. which word that was referring to in the passage? Oh, I'm sorry, anomia. It would be lawlessness. Lawlessness. Okay, yeah, great. I'm Thank sorry. You. Yep. And again, the point being here is that this lawlessness. It's interesting. The restrainer is actually restraining the lawlessness, isn't he? And so, therefore. When the restrainer is removed, you also have the man of lawlessness revealed. But if the lawlessness is revealed or is related to the apostasy, that gives further evidence that both are occurring at the same time. That's the reason why I mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in uh, verse 10, there it says, "With the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so yeah. as to be saved." Is that not happening right now? Oh, certainly, <laughs> certainly, absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah, Good. it's, it's one of my favorite verses I like. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is happening yeah, now. Related to that question, that a lot of the forces and tendencies and trends and things that will happen during the tribulation are already starting to build up. Yeah. Okay. There's such a big push now for globalism. I mean, you yeah. see it everywhere. Trying to get rid of national sovereignty as much as possible and you know like you said the deception the wickedness the unwillingness to listen to the truth but it's all just going to get magnified that you know that is that reminds me i was at let me mention something i was at um this place that i work out at the place i lift weights and there was a fellow there he's really a learned man he likes to read and he was reading that doichievsky i could never read anything by doichievsky because it's always like two thousand pages you know but it was that brothers is it brothers karmazov Right? Anybody ever read that? Well, it's interesting. This guy found a quote on page, I think it's 864 of this book, that Dojciewski, he stated that at the Tower of Babel was the first movement of the socialists or the communist movement. Well, what's interesting in our day and age, isn't it interesting that the left in progressivism and um, socialism and communism, the goal is really to usurp God's authority, and they will build their own utopia. And that's, in fact, why they call themselves progressive. Do you ever wonder, what are they progressing towards? Well, utopia, you know. And so they will have their own millennial kingdom, and it will be brought about by their own efforts. And it's interesting, even Dojciewski saw the first socialists and leftists and communists were seen at the Tower of Babel. And I thought, wow, does that express, like Bob is saying, the things that we're seeing today? It's all heading that direction, the wish to usurp God's authority. 
So, anybody else have anything? I, I don't know if we're out of time or not. Well, but, um, we're 70 minutes in. 70 minutes in. Well, thanks, everyone. So next time we're together, we'll be talking about who the restrainer is. And, um, again, uh, we'll be wrestling with that issue. So thank you.